0: Welcome back to To The Point at the Wilson Center's Latin American program. I am your host, Benjamin Gadan. My guest today is Nicolás Saldías, my friend and former colleague, and now a Latin America analyst at the Economist Intelligence Unit. Speaking to us from outside Montevideo, Nicolás discusses the legacy of the late former president of Uruguay, Tabaré Vázquez, and how a mild-mannered doctor quietly transformed Uruguayan politics. Nicolás Saldias from the Economist Intelligence Unit, thank you so much for joining us on To The Point. Thank you so much for having me. Vásquez, an oncologist, president of Uruguay from 2005 to 2010, and again from 2015 to 2020, died on December 6th. He was a member of the leftist Frente Amplio, or Broad Front Coalition. He was also the first chairman of our Latin American Program Board here at the Wilson Center. Nicolás, in an appreciation written in America's Quarterly. You said Vasquez was not the most charismatic leftist leader of his era in Latin America, but you noted that he helped Uruguay achieve enviable levels of social inclusion, and most consequentially, you said he engineered the transformation of Uruguay's left from radical to pragmatic. Now, this may sound surprising to some of our listeners, Uruguay has been long considered a democratic standard bearer for Latin America. It had this historic reputation as the Suiza de América. It has had, in our lifetimes, dependably boring and, you know, refreshingly stable politics. And yet, it was not immune to the extreme ideological polarization in the 1960s, was it, Nicolas?
1: No, it wasn't. So the moniker of Suiza de América basically came from the 1940s and 50s when Uruguay experienced a very a long period of economic growth with high levels of social inclusion, uh, real wages increased significantly. So it was like the golden era, but it was a period of time that was also dependent on international commodity prices. And by the late 1950s, commodity prices had declined and Uruguay entered into a decade-long stagnation. Um, between 1958 in 1973, the country basically didn't grow. And in that period of time, a lot of international factors also influenced the politics, like the Cuban Revolution. And so you have a combination of, you know, and capitalism and crisis, and then you have the emergence of revolutionary fervor in other parts of the region coalesce in the 1960s to create a radical left movement. And that actually manifested in a number of different ways. The institutional way was that the political left political parties, slowly began to coalesce into a single political movement that eventually became the Frente in 1971. And the labor movement, which was also dominated by the communists, but also other groups like anarchists in 1966, has organized into one unitary labor movement to also pressure the political system from the left, from the social sphere. But the third way that the left in Uruguay emerged in the 1960s in its most radical form was the Tupamaros. Who were a urban guerrilla movement uh, that were, in, that was engaging in kidnappings, um, murder, um, and uh, also uh, robberies to finance its uh, guerrilla tactics from the 1960s and into the 1970s. Eventually, by 1973, sorry, by 1971, the country had an election and Frente Amplio ran for the first time and it got 18% of the vote, which was the first time that the major parties of that had established Uruguayan politics, the Partido Nacional and Partido Colorado, didn't have a complete monopoly over politics, and so the emergence of a new left, a variable left in Uruguay, destabilized the country's politics even further, because a lot of conservative elites, including the military, saw this as an edge towards what they saw as communism and an agenda style takeover, and unfortunately, in 1973, the country fell into 12 years of very harsh. Military dictatorship that at one point had the most political prisoners per capita in the world. And I think a lot of people don't realize it, it actually was that repressive. But by 1980, the country had a referendum where the military tried to change the constitution and that failed and that opened the door to democratization.
0: So the, the Uruguayans endure this period of you know harsh dictatorship, high levels per capita of, of political detentions and torture. And Uruguayan politics emerges in some ways very similar to before the dictatorship, right? There was this idea in Uruguay, they said, you know, we learn nothing and we forgot nothing, right? And the two major parties that had been historically resume. And yet the Uruguayan left that had been known in the period right before the dictatorship um, as a quite violent you know, guerrilla movement now has the obligation to try to turn itself, turn itself into a democratic actor. Um, in the political system. Is it successful in the early years? I mean, if we look chronologically, it seems like it took quite a while to you know, gain power.
1: So I think one of the first problems is that, yes, the Duvalos eventually did become a political movement. It, they did they demobilized and joined the Frente Amplio as the MPP, um, and Mujica, Jose Mujica, who became president in 2010, was in charge. Of that movement. So there was an institutionalization of Uruguayan politics that was an important movement towards the stabilization of democracy in The Frente Amplio in 1984 and 1989, immediately after democratization, actually didn't see its vote share increase. And one of the reasons why is because the party was still, relatively speaking, ideologically living in the 60s and 70s. Uh, it was still um, tied to a very radical statist program. I wouldn't call it communist, but it was certainly socialist, uh, with large segments of the, of the economy that were supposed to be nationalized, um, very, a very interventionist state, um, and very anti American, very anti foreign investment. So it was very much a, a, a holdover from the 1970s. And the 1980s was at a very different time. The 1980s was a period when the whole region was beginning to experience serious economic disturbances because distortions caused by the reforms of the 1960s and 70s. and the damp press just wasn't able to uh, change. 1989 was an important year for that change for two reasons, and I articulate this in the article. One is that the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc began to collapse, and so. With that the confidence or the belief that an alternative capitalist system was viable also collapsed. The other thing that happened was Babade Vasquez emerged as a leader. Um, he was not a particularly well-known person in the country uh he you know he was the head of a soccer uh, team basically he was a well-known oncologist, but he wasn't a a type leader right He wasn't the leader of the Seregni, who was the leader of the frentepio. He wasn't a Mojica, he wasn't a Astori, he wasn't a Sanguinetti. He was a guy who was competent at what he did. And he won the 1989 Montevideo Municipal Election, actually against expectations as well. And the reason why he did is because he presented himself as a moderate, And I think that was one of the reasons why the French Amplio began to change, that they realized that the recipe for success wasn't necessarily giving up the idea that, you know, social change is possible, but you also have to present yourself as a reasonable administrator of policy.
0: It's it's interesting, and maybe this is an idiosyncrasy of Uruguay, we tend to think for example, in the Venezuela case, where you have sort of two traditional ossified parties that are relatively centrist, that when a third party emerges, it must emerge as populist, as anti-system, as more radical, as an option and reaction to a que se vayan todos, you know, political dissatisfaction and, and public, you know, moment of angst. And yet what you're saying here is that the way the Uruguayan third party was able to start gaining power, it was with a physician, an oncologist, who comes in as a technocrat without the, you know, romantic but controversial background of having been a guerrilla or an extreme leftist anti-system figure.
1: Yeah, Uruguay is a very different country. It's it's hard to articulate. I, you know, I do think that Uruguay has a very particular political culture that is distinct from other countries in the region, and if not, even some way in some ways the world. Uh, very few countries have similar political instincts as the Uruguayans do. You know, one of my one person I know said uh, the progressives in Uruguay are very conservative and the conservatives in are very progressive. And I think that's a very good way of thinking about Uruguay's political politics. Everything here is very much about staying in the middle. Going too far outside the middle is seen as a negative, either left or right. Um and Tabade learned that, and the Frente Amplio also learned that in the nineties. And as the party began to moderate its positions over time eventually get rid, getting rid of references to socialism and things of that uh, nature. It, it kind of paralleled what happened in Britain with the Labour Party, under Tony Blair. Um, you know, it's a third way that began to emerge, a very a third way we can say, right? Um, but slowly but surely the party did move to the center. And 1994, the country, the party did see a significant increase in the vote share. Uh, becoming basically tied with the other two parties. And by 1999, it actually won the plurality of the vote. Uh, the only reason why it lost that election is because of the Constitutional Court in 1996 that, that forced a second round. And in the second round, the supporters of the traditional parties basically uh, joined forces to defeat different people. But he came very close in 1999 to So from 1989 to 1999, the party went from a static third place party to becoming the most voted single party in uh, Uruguay's uh, general election. And it was largely because of it.
0: So within the party though, I mean, it's called the Frente Amplio for a reason. You know, the communists remain a part of it. All of the former Tupamaros with their memorias, their, their famous memoirs of their time, um, fighting against the state during, but also before the dictatorship, they remain players in this party. How did Tabaret, retain his role then through this long period in the wilderness as you know the major figure in the Frente Ambio. Was it the success of his mayorality? I mean what's your interpretation of how, without the charisma, he managed his hold on the on the coalition? Success against
1: success, I think that's the answer. Um what evidence showed he didn't what he showed is that he was able to win more and more. He was beating expectations. Um, And that's what mattered. And over time, you know, it was it was plausible for him to say, "I can win in 2004." And what actually sealed the deal for him was the economic crisis of 2001, 2002 in Argentina and Uruguay. So Uruguay, you know, suffered greatly from Argentina's crisis, with poverty rates doubling, uh, inequality surging. Uh, You know, the country that was prided itself as a middle class country. Um, with stable institutions, looked like it was rocky for the first time in at least a generation. And, you know, Tabare played a very important role because what he did is that he promised the political, he promised that he would not destabilize the political system at a time when he could have. And I think for many Uruguayans, that's actually a positive that he was able to beat back the more extreme elements of his own party to say no. We're not going to go there. We're not going to, we're not, we're not like going to destabilize the politics of this country. We're, because I think what people need to understand is that Uruguayans are very proud of their institutions. They're very proud of the stability of those institutions. And so going against that in any way is, is I think, a, a death sentence for a political party in the country. And I think Gabriela understood that. And he didn't need to do anything because the polls were showing that he was going to win anyway. So no, don't rock the boat.
0: And again, I mean, I think worth pointing out how different this is than a lot of the experience we've seen, certainly in modern Latin American history, where the left comes to power, sometimes for the first time, and often in this so-called pink tide era um, that we're now entering in your story here, you know, you had leaders come in with real projects to refound their countries, to rewrite their constitutions, to use the power to redistribute wealth in really dramatic ways to address inequality, you know, rapidly. And it sounds like what you're describing is Uruguay is this historic election of a third party, the first time the left is ruling Uruguay. And yet, it is a very moderate, pragmatic, centrist version of the Uruguayan left that not only wins power, but, but that's how it governs.
1: Yes, that's true. When Cabaret came in, it was a sea change in Uruguayan politics because he did break the two party duopoly that you just discussed. Um, and he injected into politics a new spirit, a new kind of way of doing things in the country. And the first administration of Tabare was, I think, without a doubt, one of the most transformative of Uruguay's history. We can say that, you know, there's at least three periods, I would say, of Uruguay's history that are similar. There's Bajes incorporation in the 1910s, you have the Neo Bashikmo of the 1940s, and then you have the Frente Amblismo of the 2000s, Right? I guess we're far enough in history to see that now. Um, and Tabare, introduced numerous reforms that improved the quality of life of Uruguayans. One of the most notable, of course, is labor reform. He passed over 30 labor reforms in the country. Um, Some of them, you know, some would say were excessive, too favorable to unions, but nevertheless, you know, real wages surged in the country. Minimum wages surged in the country. He he, he eased access to pensions, which was actually particularly helpful to uh, women. Um, He also you know, help the country uh, regain and maintain credibility with investors. That it's possible to bring about these types of social changes without ruining the country's finances, without in creating a uh, uh, debt crisis or inflationary crisis seen in other parts of the region. Um, and also, notably, I think, and importantly, he didn't polarize politics in this country. You know, he wasn't he was certainly of the left, he was but he didn't create an atmosphere where it was a zero sum game. And I think that's also very important. And he normalized importantly the Frente Amplion power. And I think that does go back to his role as the mayor of Montevideo. He convinced enough people that the Frente Amplion power doesn't mean we're gonna turn into Cuba. And I, I think for some people in the 80s, that's probably what they thought. And so One of the, you know, not everything that did was a success. Of course, you know, two notable things stand out. One of them, of course, was that he was unable to sign a free trade agreement with the United States because of opposition within the Grand Council. The unions and the more left-wing anti-imperialist segments of the party were very strongly against that. And one of the more controversial decisions that he made was actually vetoing an, an abortion law. So, notably. He's not he's an atheist. He didn't do it for religious purpose reasons. He did it because he says he was a doctor and he thought it was uh, inappropriate to sign a bill on those on the basis of uh, termination of a pregnancy. And he actually had to resign from his party. It's,
0: it's notable. I mean, you know, we kind of started the discussion about Tabaret emphasizing how moderate and pragmatic he was, how he jumped through hoops to reassure Uruguayans that he wasn't seeking radical change. And yet yeah, what you've listed is a pretty stunning array of achievements, it would seem, in terms of income redistribution, the, the powering of labor movements, the incorporation of former guerrillas into government, um, managing investment grade um, while, you know, imp- imposing a, a pretty pragmatic but um, progressive agenda. Um, you know, it seems like Uruguay did change notably during his two presidencies. The fact that after his second five-year term, the Uruguayan opposition won, in some ways is seen as an indictment of the Frente Amplio after you know, serving three consecutive terms, 15 years in power. What does it say about Tabaret's legacy then that after his second term in office, he wasn't able to keep the Frente Amplio in power?
1: So that's interesting. One of the historical comparisons I make there is with Neo-Bashirmo. It was also in power for 15 years, and then it petered out. And for similar reasons, because the economy slowed down significantly in his last term. Um, Baj- uh, Tabarez's last term was not notable. Uh, it didn't have major reforms in it. I feel like it was more or less a management of the, re- a management of the new UI. It was trying to keep things going. Um, and unfortunately, in the third term of the Quintián, you know, the country was facing enormous pressure. One of them was the fiscal mess left by Mujica. He did leave a fiscal mess that that had tried to deal with, but because he was also, you know, beholden to the unions, and he was also beholden to, you know, certain segments of his own party, he was really unable to enact the type of austerity that the country needed. So you had a serious opposition that stopped the country from doing what it needed to do. The other thing as well is that under Tabare, the country also experienced a surge in crime, which became a serious problem. Uruguay is not known historically as a country with a lot of crime, it's an outlier in Latin America. But by the Uruguayan standards, the increase in crime was very alarming. And the government unfortunately didn't have serious responses to that, and the population didn't think it did either. And I would say the third thing is that the Frente Amplio was very good at addressing what I what I call first generation social issues, which are poverty like monetary poverty, monetary inequality, things of that nature, which are measurable, which look good on the World Bank website. (laughs) The problem becomes when you have multidimensional conceptions of poverty and exclusion. And I think that's where the french Amplio really started hitting walls. And I would say the third, sorry, the fourth, last major failure of the French Amplio in power, including Tabaya, unfortunately, was education reform. The country desperately needs education reform. It needs to invest in its, its, its population in terms of it building human capital and unfortunately, again the Frente Amplio is beholden to very powerful public sector unions including unions that are very hostile to any type of reform
0: we just have a minute or two left nicolas i think you know we need to acknowledge that the uruguayan right as you've pointed out earlier is also not generally speaking an extreme far right you know Jair Bolsonaro type movement either is your sense that You know, Tabaré-Vázquez's achievements um, on the left in terms of creating a moderating influence on his whole party, something that will keep Uruguay's conservatives as centrist as they have been, Uh, which is to say that are you ever fearful that Uruguay, which now has for the first time a rather right-wing former general who's a part of the governing coalition, um, facing potential economic headwinds after the pandemic and in a region in tumult economically and politically, um, is at all at risk of more extreme politics? Or again, was the lesson that Tabar Vasquez taught the Uruguayan left equally applicable and influential in the Uruguay center-right?
1: The Uruguayan center-right is, I would say, very centrist, very centrist. Um, I don't see the type of polarization that you see in other countries in the region. It's just not, I don't see it happening here. And attempts to do to do this fail in the country. It's not like it hasn't happened tried right in the past. Um, Lakashi Po, who is the current president of the country, um, he, for example, very recently allowed same, people who have same-sex relationships to donate blood, which is actually very interesting for a conservative to do that, right? So it's not the conservatism of Uruguay is very different than what I think is the United States or many Western countries. So I, I, I would be hesitant to ever make that comparison. Um, what it is, what Akashi is, is certainly much more free market oriented than than Taware and the French and that's where a lot of the tensions are happening. You know, the the the, the 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 axis on which Uruguayan politics usually falls upon is whether or not the state is too big or too small. Whether or not to increase taxes, decrease decrease taxes. You know how much of a role should state monopolies play in the economy? That's really kind of the axis. And just to note about the Cabildo Abierto, which is the new right wing party. What's fascinating about that party, in some ways, is that actually on some idea on some issues, it actually aligns closely ideologically with the Peronist do and it gets its own coalition. Um. So you know, Uruguayan politics is not easily. Um, defined along left-right dynamics as we would imagine in Europe or the United States. It's its own, it's its own type of political culture that has almost a century of robust democratic uh governance. Uh, and you know, I think it's I think it's an interesting case. So yes, I think Avade had a very important influence on moderating Uruguayan politics and especially moderating the Trent, which helps the country's stability in the
0: Nicolás Saldias, analyst at the Economist Intelligence Unit, covers Uruguay, among other Latin American economies, joined us to discuss the legacy of the late Uruguayan president, Tabre Vázquez. Nicolás, thank you for joining us on To The Point. This episode of To The Point was produced and edited by Oscar Cruz. For sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at lap at wilsoncenter.org.